This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, June 30th, 2017, episode 42, concerning the exhumation of St. Cuthbert, 1827. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We come today to the end of our month of examining the remains of St. Cuthbert. Our text this episode is not itself medieval, um, but it's still of another age. But let's start by reviewing our Cuthbert timeline. He dies in 687. Eleven years later, in 698, the monks of Lindisfarne open his burial place to take up his bones and put them into a reliquary. At that time, they're amazed to discover that his body is incorrupt, and so instead of dry bones, they put his preserved corpse into their coffin reliquary. After this, follow a couple of centuries of tribulation for the community of St. Cuthbert, uh, after Lindisfarne is sacked by the Vikings and the community wanders around the north of England carrying the remains of their saint with them. Eventually, they resettle in Chesterley Street, where the saint's relics are visited and viewed by a stream of eminent and royal Anglo-Saxons. Vikings once again put the community on the move for a short period in the late 10th century, uh, after which they are established permanently in Durham. Cuthbert gets a new church, which lasts until the end of the 11th century, when it's knocked down to make way for a grand new cathedral, the Durham Cathedral that stands today. Uh, give or take some bibs and bobs. This is when we get the event we've focused on for our previous two episodes, the translation of the body of Cuthbert into the new shrine in the cathedral, and the inspection of his body that happened at that time to confirm his continued incorruptibility. Once Cuthbert is translated in 1104, the three nested coffins he's contained within are closed up and put within a stone and marble shrine, um, and while we know that there was a mechanism to elevate and display the coffins, uh, or I guess the outermost one is the only one you'd see, um, but they could be lifted up above the shrine and shown to worshippers. Uh, but there's no historical evidence that the body was ever viewed again for another 400 years. The next time it's seen is the occasion of another demolition, this time the demolition of the shrine itself. This was done uh, due to King Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries as part of England's royal break with Catholicism. This involved not only seizing monastic property, especially rich ornaments such as adorned many a shrine, um, but also rooting out Roman superstition and idolatry of saints. This was a rather bad time for medieval English manuscripts, too, which despite being very costly to produce and of great value to their communities, weren't seen as especially precious by the king's commissioners who liquidated the monasteries. Uh, there's a great passage from John Bale, Protestant Bishop of Ossory, uh, a strong anti-Catholic writer who nonetheless gives us this uh, vivid description of the fate of many a monastery library. He says, They, the king's men, reserved there, the monks, library books, some to serve their jakes, some to scour their candlesticks, and some to rub their boots. Some they sold to the grocers and soap sellers, and some they sent overseas to the bookbinders, not in small numbers, but at times whole shipfuls to the wandering of foreign nations. Uh, now, jakes is an early modern word for a privy or a latrine. So when uh, they used books to serve their jakes, Bale is telling us they were using the manuscripts as toilet paper. Interesting etymological side note, and you know I can't help myself when there's an interesting etymological side note, uh, but Jake's is believed to be a corruption of the French name Jacques, which is Jack in English, and Jack is John, so a Jake is a John. And you do see John used as a euphemism for toilet, uh, or, well, not toilet as in commode, that would be uh, a bit anachronistic, um, but as outhouse or privy or latrine, um, that usage of John dates all the way back to the Tudor period. But back to Cuthbert. I won't describe in detail what happened when the king's commissioners broke open his shrine uh, sometime between 1538 and 1540. Uh, it's unclear when precisely this occurred, which is actually a bit of a problem, because the year actually does matter for figuring out certain causes and effects. Um, we're going to get a description from a 16th century source quoted inside our main text for today, so I'll let that tell the story. 
Um, but I will go ahead and reveal that the body was discovered at the time to be whole or intact. Uh, this description, though provided by a very pro-Catholic writer, uh, nonetheless suggests to me something a bit less than he looked just like he was sleeping, um, but still more preserved than the commissioners expected to find. Because in yet one more moment of fear and trembling, uh, they are also taken aback by what they discover. And here things get a little murky. Originally, they probably would have just reburied the bones in the spot where the shrine had been, though certainly worse desecrations were sometimes reported. Um, but because this body wasn't what they were expecting, they punted the issue back up the ladder to wait for the king's orders as to what to do with it. In the meantime, the body was kept in the revestry of the cathedral. The order to bury the body finally comes down in 1542, uh, and that's why the uncertain date of the original opening of this shrine is problematic, since in terms of determining the environmental effects on a possibly mummified corpse, whether it sat out for a year or four years is kind of significant. Though, regardless, even one year out of the special conditions that had been preserving it uh, is plenty to lead us to expect at least some changes. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. The main note in our story is that Cuthbert goes unseen from 1104 to around 1540, and then after the reburial inside Durham Cathedral in 1542, he rests for almost another 300 years. Because in 1827, he is exhumed again with the specific aim of testing the claims of his incorruptibility. Sound familiar? Uh, that is, after proving first that he's even in the grave that's marked with his name, itself no sure thing after an episode like the destruction of the shrine. This investigation was spearheaded by James Rain, the librarian to the dean and chapter of Durham, and an antiquarian in the late 18th century, early 19th century mold. He was a great student of the history of Durham and writes a great deal about the architecture of the cathedral and the topography of the region, uh, though most of his work is with texts rather than archaeology. And there's a reason why we call him an antiquarian and not an archaeologist. Modern archaeology is in its infancy here in the early 1800s. Uh, you really have to wait until the latter half of the 19th century before you get the more rigorous kind of archaeological method of investigation that resembles proper archaeology today. This makes Rain's investigation a bit frustrating, uh, because he's right in that transitional period where it's a bit too early to fault him for some of his bad methodology, uh, but at the same time, he's right there at the cusp of this developing science where you really just want him to have known better. The way I'm describing this makes it sound like the 1827 investigation was a catastrophe, uh, and that's not at all the case. Um, I'll let an expert express it better than I. Uh, Colonel C.F. Battiscombe, who edited that 10-pound book on St. Cuthbert's relics that I uh, introduced last episode, uh, he describes Rain this way. Although the manner in which the investigation of 1827 was carried out was hurried, and if judged by modern standards, inevitably inexpert, Dr. Rain was a careful observer, and much that he has to tell us is therefore of permanent value. No student of the Durham treasures today can, in fact, afford to ignore what this first student thought of them and recorded about the circumstances and the conditions which attended their discovery. Uh, I'll just briefly note that Rain's doctorate, um, when Battiscombe calls him Dr. Rain, uh, that was an honorary one bestowed on him later in his life, uh, which isn't a knock against him by any means, but I just wouldn't uh, have you mistake it for formal historical or archaeological training. Aside from methods, uh, there's also an issue of motive, um, a motive which, to his credit, I suppose, Rain is not at all coy about. He's an Anglican churchman. He has an unconcealed anti-Catholic bias. Or maybe not anti-Catholic per se, but definitely anti-monkish superstitiousness. For example, he describes Reginald's narrative of Cuthbert miracle stories in this way. Quote, that the legends of Reginald were received with full assurance of faith is indubitable, a fact humiliating enough to human reason. Of Reginald's veracity, we have no means of judging, but that the venerable abbot of Rivaux, whose life was a model of all the virtues, would relate that which, however absurd and even puerile, he did not believe to be true, will be admitted by no one acquainted with his character and writings. This excessive credulity was the universal failing of the Middle Ages. 
when every part of nature was peopled with visionary beings, when the domestic fiend nightly frequented the hearth, when the elfin tribes scattered over the wild heath or in the woodland glade danced in the pale moonbeam, when the water nymph sang to the clashing of the torrent and the mountain spirit screamed from his craggy eminence, when the souls of the deceased revisited the scenes of their earthly experience, what wonder that the same superstitious feeling should give rise to so many miracles of the saints. Men whose lives had been distinguished for exalted virtue were justly held to be the favorites of heaven. That this favor should be signalized in a supernatural manner was, under the general creed of the age, to be expected. Where information is not generally diffused, superstition must prevail. A century ago, and a vast mass of it existed among the lower classes of our countrymen. Two centuries ago, and it reached the middle, nor was it unknown to the higher ranks. At the present day, it pervades not only several continental regions from which the Roman Catholic religion has been long exiled, but the mountains of Wales and Scotland. It is some gratification, however, to find that even in the darkest period, miracles were believed to be wrought not by the virtue of the saints, but by the power of God. Anyway, Rain makes it clear that one of the goals in opening the grave was to prove for once and for all that the legend of Cuthbert's incorruptibility was a fiction even an intentional fraud wrought by the monastic community. So weigh that as you will, as you consider his conclusions. Rain published his findings in 1828 in the book I've drawn our previous two episodes translations from, uh, St. Cuthbert with an account of the state in which his remains were found upon the opening of his tomb in Durham Cathedral in the year 1827. This was his first publication and a book which made his name in English antiquarian circles. However, to describe the opening of the tomb, uh, I'm actually going to read a condensed account that Rain included in his 1833 book, A Brief Account of Durham Cathedral, with notices of the castle, university, city churches, etc. I'll give you a few excerpts afterwards from some of the more detailed sections in the 1828 book to give you some of its flavor, um, but he just goes into too much detail there for us to be able to fit it into an episode. Um, and on the plus side, the 1833 book is directed at a more general audience and is a bit more readable in that regard. In fact, it's structured pretty much like a tour guide, uh, physically leading the reader through the space of Durham Cathedral. And it's in the part of the book describing the shrine that we get both some info about the destruction of the 1500s and a description of the investigation of 1827. So here it is in James Rain's own words with no need of translation for a change. Now let us enter the shrine. Here in times of old was concentrated the splendor of the church around the great idol of its veneration. Vessels of silver and gold and robes and decorations of great magnificence were appropriated to the other altars and shrines of the church, but the shrine of St. Cuthbert surpassed them all. We've already stated that the remains of Cuthbert were finally removed into the shrine in 1104. A doubt was, it seems, then entertained with respect to the alleged perfect state of the body of the saint, and two examinations were, in consequence, made into the truth of the belief entertained by the monks, that the body, although 417 years had elapsed from the time of its interment, was still perfect, clothed with skin and flesh, with joints flexible, countenance calm and composed, and resembling one asleep rather than dead. The first investigation was made privately, at midnight, by the monks themselves, lest the tale of the incorruptibility of their saint should, during the removal of his remains into the shrine, which was to take place three days afterwards, be proved to be a fable. A very minute account of their proceedings upon this occasion is upon record, and so well were matters arranged that, in the second and final examination, in broad daylight on the 4th September in the above year, in the presence of Alexander, King of Scotland, and a numerous assemblage of church dignitaries, there was very reluctantly exhibited, after much doubt and delay and altercation, a figure in the coffin of Cuthbert, which appeared to confirm the creed of the monks. But when many advanced to witness more closely the reality of the exhibition, the prior, by a grave command, compelled them to retire backwards, and permitted only one man, an ecclesiastic of his own order, to touch the body of the saint and move some of its joints. Bishop Flambard, though in Durham at the time, took no part in the investigation, but contented himself with preaching to the multitude after the conclusion of the solemnity. 
The historians of this transaction describe, with great minuteness, the coffins in which the body was enclosed, the robes in which it was clad, and the various ornaments and relics which were buried along with it. Many of these we shall have occasion to mention hereafter. In this state, the coffin of Cuthbert was placed in the shrine, upon a bier of stone, supported by nine stone pillars, the gift of Alexander, King of Scotland, where it reposed till the year 1372, when Lord John Neville of Raby, the principal contributor to the altar screen, presented to it a more dignified resting place, a table of marble and alabaster, which was executed in London at the cost of 200 pounds. In the meantime, the process of enrichment had been steadily advancing. Funds had been established for the maintenance of lamps to burn before the shrine day and night, and it became by degrees embellished with presents of great value, in connection with a mass of pretended relics and other trumpery, a list which, compiled in 1383 and first printed by Dr. Smith in his edition of Bede, must have excited many a smile in its readers. We find there mentioned, as contained within the shrine, a pyx of crystal containing the milk of St. Mary the Virgin, manna from the grave of St. Mary, a portion of the bread blessed by our Lord, a piece of the tree under which the three angels sate with Abraham, bones of the innocent slain by Herod, a piece of the desert in which our Savior fasted forty days, one of the stones aimed at St. Stephen, a piece of the throne upon which Christ sate with his twelve disciples, a portion of the twelve thrones of the apostles, three griffin's eggs, and other similar absurdities. Accounts have been preserved of the offerings made at the altar of St. Cuthbert within the shrine from the year 1376 to the dissolution, and from these and other data, it is manifest that the saint had long been losing his influence before that event took place. Uh, and here I'm going to omit a very lengthy quotation Rain includes from an earlier source, uh, an English translation of a Latin text that's otherwise lost, um, originally written in 1593, but published in 1672 as a description or brief declaration of all the ancient monuments, rites, and customs belonging to the monastical church of Durham before the suppression, written in 1593. This text, uh, usually referred to by the simpler, shorter title, The Rites of Durham, was then incorporated with some further alterations into Patrick Sanderson's 1767 book with the grand 18th century title, take a breath, The Antiquities of the Abbey or Cathedral Church of Durham, also a particular description of the County Palatine of Durham compiled from the best authorities and original manuscripts to which is added the succession of the bishops, deans, archdeacons, and prebends, the bishops' courts and his officers, and the castles and mansions houses of the nobility and gentry with other particulars. <sighs> the value of the rites of Durham is that it does seem to be written by someone who was an eyewitness to the destruction of the shrine by the agents of Henry VIII, um, though it's also written from what uh, Battiscombe characterizes as a, quote, violently anti-Reformation point of view. Um, I'll now resume Rain's text uh, after about four pages of quoted description of the shrine uh, as he introduces a much briefer quotation from the rites of Durham. We have one more extract to make from this graphic writer. Quote, the sacred shrine of Holy St. Cuthbert was defaced at the visitation held at Durham for the demolishing of such monuments by Dr. Lee, Dr. Henley, and Mr. Blythman in King Henry VIII's reign at his suppression of religious houses. They found many valuable and goodly jewels, especially one precious stone which, by the estimate of those three visitors and their skillful lapidaries, was of value sufficient to redeem a prince. After the spoil of his ornaments and jewels, they approached near to his body, expecting nothing but dust and ashes. But perceiving the chest he lay in strongly bound with iron, the goldsmith, with a smith's great forehammer, broke it open. When they found him lying whole, uncorrupt, with his face bare and his beard as of a fortnight's growth, and all the vestments about him as he was accustomed to say mass, and his met wand of gold lying by him. When the goldsmith perceived he had broken one of his legs in breaking open the chest, he was sore troubled at it and cried, Alas, I have broken one of his legs, which Dr. Henley hearing called to him and bade him cast down his bones. The other answered that he could not get them asunder, for the sinews and skin held them so that they would not separate. Then Dr. Lee stepped up to see if it were so, and turning about, spake Latin to Dr. Henley that he was entire though Dr. Henley, not believing his words, called again to have his bones cast down. Dr. Lee answered, If you will not believe me, come up yourself and see him. Then Dr. Henley stepped up to him and handled him and found he lay whole. Then he commanded them to take him down. And so it happened contrary to their expectation 
that not only his body was whole and uncorrupted, but the vestments wherein his body lay and wherein he was accustomed to say mass were fresh, safe, and not consumed. Whereupon the visitors commanded him to be carried into the revestry till the king's pleasure concerning him was further known, and upon receipt thereof the prior and monks buried him in the ground under the place where his shrine was exalted. End of quotation. In addition to these statements, we must add that the visitors removed from the coffin of Cuthbert a few articles of value which more immediately attracted their attention, such as his met wand of gold, his precious ring, etc. This ring, when last heard of, was in the possession of an English canoness of Paris. The bill for the making of the grave of Cuthbert, after it was determined to bury his remains within the shrine in 1542, is preserved in the library. It speaks of the marble stone under which they were interred and other interesting particulars. This marble stone was disturbed for the first time from that period on Thursday, May 17, 1827, and such discoveries were then made as proved that the grave which it had covered contained the reputed remains of the sainted patron of the Church of Durham. The blue stone was found to rest upon soil 18 or 20 inches in thickness, beneath which was a large slab of freestone of nearly a similar size, containing upon its lower face the name of Richard Heswell, a monk who is known to have died before the year 1446, and which must have been removed in 1542 from the cemetery Garth on the south side of the church, the only burial place of the monks, to serve as a cover to the vault below it. Its surface was purposely turned downwards to show that it was converted to a use for which it was not originally intended. In a walled grave beneath this stone, of the form of a parallelogram, appeared a chest of similar shape, in great decay, made strong originally by rods of iron, with iron rings on its sides and ends. This was the new coffin made in 1542. The remains of an earlier coffin next appeared, probably that described in the investigation of 1104 as covered with skins, for there were observed upon it evident traces of some such envelope. In connection with the fragments of the lid of this second coffin were discovered, towards its lower extremity, in a confused state, numerous human bones, some of them those of children. These were probably the relics preserved in the shrine at the dissolution, which might naturally enough have been enclosed in the new coffin prepared for the saint in 1542. The discovery of the remains of children seems to warrant this supposition, as the monks are known to have been in possession of bones which they passed off as relics of children slain by Herod. After these bones were removed, a third coffin presented itself, which, although in great decay, was of a character materially different from those already described. The character and decorations of this third chest proved it to be the selfsame coffin so minutely described in 1104 and, in consequence, the identical coffin in which the remains of Cuthbert were placed at Lindisfarne in the year 698. Its lid and sides and bottom and ends exhibit rude delineations in lines carved apparently with the point of a knife, of evangelists, apostles, saints, etc., and the inscriptions in connection with each figure were in characters used at the time of St. Cuthbert's death and of a period long anterior to the settlement of the monks at Durham. In the lower end of this third coffin, and apparently originally placed beneath its lid, which was much broken, was discovered a full-grown skull in a somewhat decayed state. This was probably the reputed skull of Oswald, King of Northumberland, the only human relic which was suffered by the investigators of 1104 to remain in the coffin of Cuthbert. When the fragments of the lid and sides and ends of this last-mentioned coffin had been removed, its contents, along with the bottom on which they rested, were raised from the grave and placed by its side, and then it was discovered that the dark, dingy mass of matter before the eyes of the investigators consisted of a human skeleton, swathed in robes originally of great beauty, but most of them in great decay. The outer envelope, portions of which were found adhering to the coffin, had apparently been of linen, and such was the outer envelope in which Cuthbert had been swathed in 1104. The other robes were so tattered and torn and confused that the exact situation of each could not be ascertained. One was of thin, amber-colored silk, ornamented with the pattern of an armed knight riding on a richly carapacined steed, and other decorations, especially a border of rabbits. These ornaments had been covered with leaf gold, portions of which still remained. 
A second was of thick, soft silk, decorated with a pattern representing the sea, with porpoises and waterfowl, perhaps the eider duck, still called Cuthbert's duck upon the Farne Islands, disporting themselves in its waves in colors of red, yellow, and purple. The decorations of these two robes seem apparently to have reference to Lindisfarne and its natural history. A third of silk had a ground of amber, with a diaper pattern of lighter tint, the whole surrounded by a border of thick lace of a Roman pattern woven in the loom. A fourth of silk, colors purple and crimson, ornamented with crosses. And a fifth of silk also, colors purple and crimson, embellished with a pattern in oval of an urn supported by griffins, etc. These robes seem to correspond with the general description of those in which the saint was enveloped in 1104. Amid these decayed robes were found other relics of greater interest. One, a coarse comb of ivory, which corresponds most minutely with the description of the ivory comb found and left in the coffin in 1104. This comb had been fabricated by Alfred the Sacrist, about the year 1022, for the purpose of assisting in cutting the hair of the saint, which was reported to require that operation periodically. And as often as it was performed, a portion of the hair which was removed was exhibited to the spectators, glittering like gold, and miraculously triumphing over the fire to which it was applied. Will it be believed that this pretended hair was, in very reality, gold wire itself, a quantity of which was found in connection with the skull of the skeleton during the investigation of which we are writing? 2. A small tablet of wood, covered with silver, probably the silver altar spoken of as contained in the coffin in 1104. The thin covering of silver was so much broken during its removal that a few letters only of an inscription upon its surface could be preserved. The tablet of wood, upon which the plating of silver had been laid, had apparently been previously used in its unornamented state for the same purpose of an altar, as it also contained an inscription in the characters of the 7th century, proving that it had been fabricated in honor of St. Peter. 3. A small sacramental burse of the size of an octavo book, made of fine linen and reduced by time to a dusky brown color, as if it had been tanned. 4. A rich stole, roven with flattened threads of pure gold and ornamented with inlet figures in a tapestry work of prophets and apostles and evangelists, with the name of each in legible letters of silk and an inscription in similar characters, proving that it had been made by the command of Alflad for the pious Bishop Frithistan. 5. A maniple of the same materials, similarly ornamented and containing a similar historical inscription. These splendid specimens of ancient art and munificence could not be removed from the skeleton in an entire state, but the greater part of both was saved, and thus a most valuable addition has been made to our knowledge of the Saxon art of weaving and embroidery. Frithistan, for whose use these robes were made, was consecrated Bishop of Winchester in 909 or 910, nearly a century before Durham was pitched upon as the final resting place of Cuthbert. And at that period there were three Alflads, one the daughter of King Alfred and the wife of Ethelbert, Earl of Mercia, a princess of great wisdom and resolution and intimately connected with the civil and military history of her times. Another, Alfred's daughter-in-law, the wife of Edward the Elder, his son and successor, and third, his granddaughter, a nun in the Abbey of Winchester, and in all probability, from her connection with that place, the princess by whose command these gorgeous habiliments were made. At all events, they were brought to Chesterley Street, and then the seat of our northern sea in the year 934 by King Athelstan, and offered to St. Cuthbert. 6. A girdle and two bracelets, woven with threads of pure gold and scarlet silk, the former flattened like those of the stolen maniple above described. 7. A maniple of gold and scarlet silk of the most ingenious and ornamental texture, but from its shape and character belonging to a period a full century posterior to the year 1104, and therefore placed within the coffin after that period. 8. A cross of pure gold, as has been ascertained by investigation, found upon the breastbone of the skeleton, slung from its neck by a cord of silk and gold thread, running through a bright loop of the latter material and set with 53 stones, apparently garnets. This cross with the stones weighs 15 pennyweights 12 grains. When the skeleton of the saint was laid bare, the bones, although no longer connected by sinews and ligaments, were found to be perfect and smooth and dry and in their respective places. Those of the right arm were in an elevated position as if giving the benediction. 
The length which they occupied upon the bottom of the coffin measured 5 feet 8 inches from the extremity of the skull to the ankle. The ribs and the bones of the feet had fallen from their places. A portion of the front of the skull was faintly marked with a tint of gold, of the breadth of a ribbon or fillet. In 1104, there was observed a fillet of gold set with precious stones upon the forehead of the saint. Portions of the face cloth, which at that time was not permitted to be raised, were also discovered, and two round artificial balls of a whitish color were found in the cavities once occupied by the eyes. We subjoin an engraving of the skull from a drawing made on the spot, and have only to say that it strictly corresponds with the description of the skull of Cuthbert, as it was seen in its seer cloth in 1104. The bone of his nose was then observed to turn rapidly outwards, and the tip of his chin was furrowed with a line of such depth that a finger might almost be laid in the cavity. The result of this investigation proved that these were the reputed remains of St. Cuthbert, and that the story of his incorruptibility was the invention of the monks of Lindisfarne, at a time when almost every other cathedral and monastery in the kingdom was pretending to make similar discoveries of tutular saints sleeping in all the odor of incorruptibility. Lindisfarne, of course, kept pace with the debased opinions and practices of the period, and hence St. Cuthbert and all the real and pretended veneration, all the imposture and romance, for he has been made to take part in numerous highly poetical tales, which were connected with his name and pretended incorruptibility for many a century, and which still form the subject of many a long winter evening's conversation in many a village in the Palatinate. It is no easy task to dissipate the mist of popular belief in matters of tradition or legendary lore. To which, Rain has a footnote, reading, Who, for instance, can convince the people in that neighborhood that Andrew Mills was not gibbeted alive near Ferry Hill in 1683 for the murder of his master's three children? To this general belief is added the tale, equally credited, that he lived for several days in his excruciating cage of chains, fed by a female who was attached to him, and that he at last died uttering the most heart-rending cries. Mills was executed at Durham, and it was his dead body only which was suspended in chains. Again, there's this tale of the man who leapt from an elevated part of Durham Abbey for a purse of money, and whose effigy in the churchyard with the purse in his hand is almost as well known in the county as the church itself. The effigy is that of a female, and the purse is in reality a glove. But more of this hereafter. Resuming the main text... But let the truth be once told, and it will make its way, although its progress may for a while be slow. With the exception of the bones already mentioned, the inner coffin appeared to have at no period contained animal matter, as no traces of flesh and blood were found, even in their most decomposed state. The dust and ashes in connection with the skeleton were those of the various robes in which it had been clad from time to time to give it the bulk and appearance of a body in a state of preservation. And, still further to keep up that appearance, the cavities of the eyes had been purposely stuffed with a composition that the face cloth, which, as we already stated, was not suffered to be raised in 1104, might be fitly supported and exhibit externally the form of eyeballs below. The bones of Cuthbert and the other human relics found in his grave were reinterred the same evening in a new coffin with the various fragments of the two external coffins already mentioned, and the grave was closed as before. Such portions of the inner coffin as were preserved, including one of its rings, with the fragments of the silver altar and that of the wood, together with the cross, the ivory comb, the stole, the two maniples, the bracelets, the girdle, the gold wire from the skull, the remains of the five outer robes, and some of the rings of the outer coffin made in 1543, were removed into the manuscript closet of the library, where they are now carefully preserved. So there's James Rain's condensed version of the 1827 investigation. If you want to criticize Rain, he provides ample grounds. He clearly has preconceptions about the site and biases that he's intent on confirming. And besides that, you have some shoddy methodology, uh, indeed, some somewhat destructive methodology. The depth and clarity with which Rain presents his observations produces a kind of clinical and precise tone that perhaps masks some of the deeper issues with his investigation. 
For example, in wading through page after page of detailed descriptions of artifacts in the 1828 book, you get this impression of exhaustiveness. But Rain tells us, right there at the end of today's summary of the investigation, that the whole thing was done in the span of a single day, from the opening of the grave to reburial. And there are other indications of haste and carelessness that emerge. For example, here's a passage from the 1828 book discussing the relics found alongside Cuthbert uh, and explaining with more supporting evidence how Rain believes they got back into Cuthbert's tomb when we're told they had been removed in 1104. So Rain here is supporting his argument that the people who reburied Cuthbert in 1542 put the other relics that had been salvaged from their separate places in the shrine when it was demolished, uh, they put them in with Cuthbert. Um, but the key thing we want to pay attention to is what he says at the end of this little passage. He writes, That these relics would be buried somewhere when that event had taken place and their virtue was gone admits of no doubt. That they would be again buried with St. Cuthbert may be naturally supposed. And I would ask, was it not for this very purpose that linen was purchased and made into a sheet in 1541 to 1542 in connection with the grave of St. Cuthbert as a decent envelope for these very bones and other relics of a similar nature preserved in the ferritory? That the sheet was not made for the saint himself is plain enough from the state in which he was found. I must admit that no traces of a sheet were observed adhering to the other bones in question, uh, but then I must state that this part of the investigation was very hastily gone through from an over-anxiety to reach at once the real object of our curiosity. If traces of the sheet had been looked for, I am convinced they would have been found. So, on the plus side, he's honest about this particular shortcoming of the investigation, uh, but it does make one wonder about the overall level of skill and quality control that went into this endeavor. There was a follow-up investigation by a much more modernized archaeological team in 1899, where they again opened the tomb, this time hoping to maybe reach more forensic conclusions about the remains, um, both those of Cuthbert and the skull of Oswald. The general conclusion in the end, while not absolutely positive, being that these are most likely the authentic remains of both Cuthbert and Oswald, and if nothing else, neither is a substitute set of bones from later in the Middle Ages, as some skeptics had also alleged. Uh, though not Rain, he, as we see, certainly believed he had the genuine articles before him. The other goal of this 1899 investigation was to try to retrieve more fragments of that carved inner coffin, uh, which they did, and it has subsequently been dated to the late 7th century, Thus, basically confirming, as Rain had already uh, postulated, that it is that same reliquary which the Lindisfarne monks put Cuthbert into in 698. These fragments have been put together like puzzle pieces, and while a great deal is missing, you can see a fair amount of the carving, um, and I encourage you to do a Google image search on Cuthbert's coffin to see it. Um, actually, I encourage you to do that with all the artifacts that were recovered and are still preserved at Durham Cathedral. Uh, they're great images. And in fact, if you're lucky enough to be in Northern England uh, this summer, they're on special exhibit at the cathedral. Um, I gather some of them are always on display, but I guess right now you could see even more of them uh, if you happen to be in the neighborhood of Durham Cathedral this July. But even with his shortcomings, which are at least partly faults of his age, Rain recovered some amazing early medieval artifacts, and his descriptions are really great. To rehabilitate Rain a little bit, I want to give you another short excerpt from the 1828 book to show what he's like when he's at liberty to go into as much detail as he wants. Uh, like I said, it makes it too long to read on this show, but his book is available freely through Google Books, and I think it's really compelling reading. Um, so as a sampler, here's his description of the first coffin they uncovered when they removed that second stone. The state and condition of this outer coffin may be easily described. Its lid was nearly entire, but probably from having been made of green timber, or from the influence of the damp masonry by which it had been originally surrounded, it had completely detached itself from the coffin on end and side, and to use a term for which I have to thank Mr. Fairclough, it was dished upwards, both in length and breadth, like a scroll of parchment shriveled before the fire and at first sight it might have been taken for a trough, which it closely resembled. The moldings of the lid and sides, notwithstanding their thickness, were all loose and broken into short disjointed pieces. The ends and sides were in the same state, and that the nature of the wood was completely exhausted 
was evident from its light and brittle state. I think that's a great paragraph. I wish we could talk a lot more about all the artifacts recovered, the altarpiece, the jeweled cross, uh, which is a bit mysterious since it's not mentioned in our 1104 writers, um, though the answer seems to be that since it was worn underneath the vestments, um, they just simply never saw it because they didn't look past the outermost vestments. Um, But especially I wish we could talk about the textiles, which are really amazing. I will briefly comment on the comb since I did bring it up back in our first Cuthbert episode. Uh, But really, Rain has sort of said um, everything I was going to say with his theory about the miraculously preserved hair that Alfred would burn, uh, perhaps not being hair at all, but being some of the gold wire that was wrapped around the saint's skull. That's a claim that strikes me as not implausible, uh, especially based on Alfred's uh, rather tricky character, as we saw back in episode 22. Anyway, what I think we can talk about to wrap things up here is how we get from the body handled and displayed in 1104 to the body we have in 1540 to the dry bones we have in 1827. So let's do a quick little survey of the field of explanations. Explanation 1. Cuthbert was a holy person and he was miraculously incorrupt. Then... Either this incorrupt body was at some point in history removed to a secret location and replaced with a corruptible substitute body, or because of the wickedness of England in its abandonment of the true church, God withdrew the incorruptibility, this signifier of promised resurrection, uh, because the people of Durham weren't worthy of it anymore, and so the body started rotting sometime during the Reformation. The first theory doesn't actually hold up, uh, even if you believe in miraculous incorruption, Um, and that's because the probability that the monks in a later period could find an intact skeleton of the same time period as Cuthbert, of the appropriate age, with signs consistent with diseases Cuthbert had, and keep it in the original vestments in the right layering, uh, really only a second miracle could bring that about. As for incorruptibility wearing off after a while, or where faith is lacking, um, that's a matter for believers to debate. Assuming that the perceived incorruptibility was never supernatural, what explanations remain? Well, explanation two. Rain's theory is that it was a sham and a fraud pretty much from the get-go. He thinks the remains were always basically skeletal, um, but so wrapped and bound in fabric, kind of like a saintly scarecrow, that they could be passed off as a body with flesh on it. So I'll give him one last quotation here where he can expand on this theory. This is from the 1828 book. After the larger fragments of the lid, sides, and ends of the coffin which I have last described were removed from the grave, there appeared at its bottom a dark substance of the length of a human body, which, after a moment's investigation, proved to be a skeleton, lying with its feet to the east, swathed apparently in one or more shrouds of linen or silk, through which there projected, in their respective places, the brow of the skull and the lower part of the leg bones. The bones of the feet were disjointed and fallen flat. In this stage of the process, it was deemed advisable to elevate the whole substance from the bottom of the grave before any further examination was made. And for this purpose, one strong board was placed longitudinally and three transversely under the lowest bottom of the coffin, by means of which the remains were raised up in an undisturbed state and placed upon trestles on the spot, a step which most materially facilitated the subsequent investigation. Here it should be remarked that the bottom of the grave was perfectly dry and free from any offensive smell, nor was there any, even the slightest, symptom that a human body had ever undergone decomposition within its walls. The same remark must be made with respect to the body itself. The only unpleasant smell connected with it arose from the moldy and somewhat damp state of the robes in which it was swathed. Our first step after the skeleton was raised out of its grave was to free it still more carefully from the broken wood and dust which rested upon it, and in doing this, it was impossible to leave uninjured the robes by which it was protected. Some of them were, in fact, in such a state of decay as scarcely to endure the slightest touch. Skipping ahead in the text a bit, he continues, Now we found adhering to the skull pieces of the finest cloth, and so adhering to it as most thoroughly to convince those who saw them that the envelope of which they formed a part had been put upon the skull when that skull was nothing more than a bare, dry bone. 
What would have become of so thin a coating of cloth if the hairy scalp of the saint had remained to fall away into corruption beneath it? And how, under such circumstances, could distinct portions of that said thin grave cap have remained in the place and condition in which they were found? But to return from inference to fact, will it be believed the eye holes of this said skull, in order to give the above face cloth the projecting appearance of eyes in their respective places, had been originally, and still continued, stuffed full with a whitish composition, which admirably retained its color and consistency, and which, upon being removed from its place, was easily pressed into a powder by the finger and thumb. So Rain is claiming a kind of papier-mâché corpse, waxed fabric stretched over bones with some filler material included to provide flesh where there was none. And based on his observations, namely the lack of any evidence of flesh rotting and affecting the fabric, this theory suddenly sounds kind of convincing. Or it's proof of a miraculous evaporation of the flesh, um, which is maybe a special variant of incorruptibility um, that I haven't ever heard discussed before. But that's taking Rain's observations at face value. Explanation 3 is put forward by Battiscombe and relies on the findings of the 1899 examination of the bones. The anatomist of the 1899 team, Dr. Selby Plummer, also saw the covering adhering to the bone that Rain did, but he didn't interpret it as definitely fabric. Now, maybe he wasn't primed by the chronicle accounts to expect a closely adhering fabric, as Rain almost certainly was. Uh, the anatomist's observation is the adherence of a membranous covering or layer still discernible on the bones of the skeleton was strong evidence that the body had existed for a long time in a mummified condition, and that the interment within a stone coffin in the sandy soil of Lindisfarne might be a sufficient cause of this mummification. And he observes in the eye sockets not some artificial filler, but material that he thinks is consistent with being preserved and shriveled eyeballs. So maybe we do have a corpse that shows signs of not necessarily miraculous incorruption, but certainly remarkable preservation. Battiscombe's argument is that the corpse was embalmed by the Lindisfarne monks, buried in sandy and salty soil there, and these two factors produced a quite well-preserved mummy. But what kind of embalming are we talking about? It's not the elaborate procedure of a modern mortician, uh, nor that of an ancient Egyptian priest. It's little more than just what the word itself originally meant. So here's another brief etymological digression. Uh, embalm is a kind of curious word. It evokes a very specific process for us when we hear it today, um, but the simpler core meaning is right there and obvious in the components of the word. But it's been so naturalized for us, I bet most of us would never even notice them. To embalm something is to infuse it with balm. And balm, in its original sense, is an aromatic resinous product or fragrant oil, often used medicinally, uh, but a bit different from what we would call a medicated balm today. Uh, balm derives from Latin balsamum or balsam. Now, balsam itself basically just means fragrant tree resin. Uh, and in my family, balsam is, of course, synonymous with Christmas tree, because for a long time, balsam firs were our preferred species of tree, uh, until they became a lot harder to find in West Tennessee tree lots for some reason uh, back in the early 90s, and Douglas and Fraser firs started filling in instead. Um, but we liked balsams because they put out a great smell, and that goes to the core of their name. They're called balsam firs because they put out a lot of nice-smelling resin. Balsam is an adjective describing fir. The original balsam, so to speak, uh, would probably be the true balsam or balsam of Mecca, a.k.a. balm of Gilead, of biblical fame, the resin of a rather prickly-looking desert tree. Anyway, that brings us back to embalming, where the preferred balm uh, was myrrh, which is the resin of another prickly-looking desert tree, uh, in fact, of the same genus as the one that produces balm of Gilead. Um, probably. There's generally some margin of doubt about connecting virtually any common name from biblical or classical text to a specific species. But anointing and imbuing the corpse with oils and balm was a key part of the embalming process. So after washing it and before or alongside wrapping and dressing it in strips or windings of linen. 
You might also have organ or fluid removal in there sometimes, depending on local customs or the person's wishes. Um, So there's a tradition among some aristocrats to have organs removed so that they could be buried in different places, either to quickly remove rotting viscera from a corpse that maybe had a long journey back to its home country, uh, or indeed just to be able to spread around the honor of being allowed to bury a patron uh, to a number of different important sites. Now, we saw this with King John's remains um, recently in episode 36. His bowels were removed and buried at Crokeston Abbey, and the rest of his body went on to be buried at Worcester. Battiscombe argues that an embalmed mummy explains the strangely adhesive linen covering observed in 1104. It explains the corpse remaining intact. It even explains the heavenly fragrance that surrounded the corpse. Uh, though that is also a hagiographical commonplace, uh, so it may be one of those details that's there just because it's supposed to be there, per the genre rules. Um, the one major element that remains rather unexplained, uh, for me anyway, is the flexibility of the corpse described in the Chronicles. Um, I never picture desiccated mummies as being very flexible at the joints. Uh, I rather figured they'd snap in half if you tried to bend them. But apparently, a little bit of Googling tells me that there are real ancient mummies with movable joints out there, um, so maybe it's not so strange. And why does a mummy that's lasted so long end up turned to bone in just the last 300 years of its existence? Well, those two to four years kept outside of what previously had been a nearly airtight coffin, remember all the waxed covering that Reginald describes? That could do a lot to introduce factors that would lead to the fairly rapid deterioration and decay of the dried-out flesh that remained. And the burial underground afterwards introduces more moisture and so forth, and it basically becomes much more plausible that the flesh could crumble away, much like the wooden coffin, which had also survived intact for nearly as long, crumbled away into fragments in this new grave. All right, I think it's time to leave St. Cuthbert in our rearview mirror, at least for a little while. Uh, Whenever we come back to Simeon, who definitely has a lot left to offer us, we're going to have a good chance of bumping into Cuthbert again. I give you a very short riddle last episode. It was simply, what buries itself? This is one of the claret riddles, and the answer they're looking for is your spittle. You spit on the dirt, and the spit buries itself down in the dirt. Not bad, um, but not one you could really work out from any clues in the text itself. Which brings us to a new mystery word. And without further ado, our new word, whose meaning will be revealed next episode, is kakaboros. Kakaboros. And the meaning of that word is a clue to the content of our next episode, uh, which should be coming out later in July. Until then, you can get more information about this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. If you want to say anything to me, you can email me there at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com, or you can find me on Twitter at mdtpodcast. You can also find me at Patrick Lane on Twitter. Um, There's a British technology journalist with the same name who I'm sure hates me for getting that handle. I definitely get a few misdirected tweets about tech issues from time to time, Um, but I do all the show stuff through at mdtpodcast, so that's really the one to follow. And I think that just about does it. Uh, I've got a summer to get to. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>